0: We are talking in these three weeks about our aspirations as a church, the kind of question that you would have to answer to be able to answer the question, is Rock Creek a good church? You'd have to say, well, well, what is a good church? I mean, does merely having a phenomenally handsome and fit pastor qualify? Probably not only that. So what makes a good church? And we're talking about our responsibilities and privileges toward God, our responsibilities and privileges toward one another, our responsibility and privileges toward the world. Last week we talked about our calling to God, which is a calling of worship, which I suggested was only not only our calling, but is also our cure, that God has very tenderly and very expertly, choreographed a situation where he has summoned us to do the very thing that's going to heal us, which is a nice thing that he does. We have responsibilities also, though, because God's life is so bound up in the life of his people, we have responsibilities and privileges with each other. So this week we're going to look at not worship, but nurture. This aspect of the church's calling And by church, I mean each of you, to fuss over each other, to labor and be attentive to and to be troubled for and to mourn with and to rejoice alongside the people in the chairs in front and behind you and beside you and the ones who aren't even here this morning, to help us become what we're presently not. Not. It has been said that a family has been created, and one of its purposes is for the formation of persons, which is a very warm-hearted way of saying something, isn't it? The formation of persons. Ask any mother what she's about, and she'll tell you the formation of persons. But that's what we're up to, is that we're taking these little people, whether you're in a school or a family or a church, these little people who are not yet what they're meant to be. And you're trying to provide the right environment and the right conditions and the right inputs into their lives, affection and tenderness, correction and training, so that they become the men and women that they were meant to be, that they begin to adopt God's purposes for their lives and then begin to enact them. Andy Crouch has a book called The TechWise Family, which I'm thinking of trying to get some folks together to read and study together. As I've read around in it, he says that one of the goals of a family that will help them as they decipher the best ways forward with technology is asking this question. Is what I'm doing making me more wise or more courageous? And it's an interesting two pronged test. Because it takes from this idea that in the Bible, wisdom is the thing that living people need to get. God is a God of wisdom who will give it generously to anybody who asks, we're told. We're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That when you begin to bow your knees to the one who breathed everything into existence, you can start to get a proper order of things in the universe and things don't get so cattywampus and upside down and you begin to know how to live with godly skill. It's not just knowledge, it's knowing how to apply that knowledge in all the complex situations that we come up against. And there's this wisdom, but there's also the call for courage, which C.S. Lewis would say, courage is the testing point of all... It's all the virtues at their testing point. In other words, as any of you have discovered, most of the time when you're called to be especially brave... Loving, kind, generous. If you're supposed to stand up for someone who's being maltreated. If you want to bear witness to something that you really believe. In almost every situation, you don't just need to believe something. And you don't just need to be something. You need to have not a coward problem. You need to have courage. It takes a lot of courage to speak up and say something that you know will be unpopular, to practice something that no one else is practicing, to refrain from something that everyone else is doing. Nobody is eager, well, most people are not eager to look like a freak unless they can control the freakiness and assert it to the world as an identity, but that's a whole other thing. And so, as we look at what Paul's talking about in this lovely passage about nurture, about the the church's calling, you can see this. He's urging us to a kind of wisdom. He says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I'm going to the top of Ephesians 4. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. He's urging a church, the church at Ephesus, to live wisely. To think about what and why have I been summoned into this circulatory system of God's grace? Why have I been called into it and how can I live worthily of it? That's what wisdom is. It's trying to figure out how do I live as an image bearer of God who's being reclaimed by God. And He gives us some features of that life of wisdom living worthily. Of the calling of God. He says, first, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. So, the first thing, if we're going to live worthily, if we're going to live wisely, if we're going to live in a way that nurtures life in our congregation, then we're going to have to be a people who do not exist to make our own names great. That's the opposite way of saying be humble. We have to be people who are willing to live not to make our own names great. And I say it that way because if I say be humble, you think, well, I don't know what you think. But you might think that means hide in a corner. That means just be quiet a lot. That means don't try anything. Don't speak up. But, of course, that doesn't mean that. It means don't be preoccupied with yourself. Don't think about you so much. And, of course, the only reason Paul can tell people to be humble is because they have been treated in a way that when we believe it, it can cure all the things that make us not humble. See, he reckons that God has poured out This kind of love that he prays that we'll understand together. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, he says in the previous chapter, may continue to grasp together with all the saints how high and wide and long and deep is the love of Christ for you, a love that surpasses knowledge. When you are not humble, you are thinking that you are a soul free agent on the planet whose job it is to make a way for yourself, to make a name for yourself, to make yourself important so that you can be loved, to make yourself great so that you can be heralded, to make good on what you're supposed to do so that people will praise you, so that you'll be famous to some small group of people or maybe to a large. And Paul has this keen sense that God's people who have been engrafted into his work are actually famous already with the only eyes that matter. They're famous with God, that one day they will receive praise from God. One day you will receive praise from God. And so, if you walk through this earth and think, all that I am needing is coming from Christ. He can heal my inferiority. He can take away my need to make a name for myself. Then we can be humble with each other and as we're humble with each other then the other thing that happens is we stop seeing one another as competitors. Now, most of what I'm saying, nobody is going to tell you anywhere, hopefully in Christian settings, but nobody's going to tell you this on social media that you should reject self-promotion, that you should reject excessive self-autobiography. You know what that is? Like telling everybody everything you're doing all the time. I mean, that's—I mean—it's a rare phenomenon. No one really does that. But the problem with it is—is is if we're practicing always telling everybody about ourselves, if we're practicing always thinking, "If you get praised, then I'm not getting praised," then one, we can't have unity. Two, nobody's going to grow around us, and and we reject. We we stiff arm. The mercies of God who gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. And of course, he opposes the proud until they're humble. Because the proud can't receive from them. It's not just that he won't give to them. They can't receive. Their fists are clenched. They think that life has to happen on their terms. My reputation, my honor, my salvation, says the psalmist, depend on the Lord. And God's people are practicing believing that. And therefore, they can honor one another above themselves. They can let another go before them. They can let another be praised. In fact, they can even praise another. One of the tests of your humility will be how easily can you encourage other people without feeling threatened yourself. Or even if it makes you feel threatened, go ahead and do it anyway. You'll die a little and that'll be good because that's the part that needs to die. See, if we're going to be in a church that nurtures one another, one of the things we'll have to do is we'll have to notice good things, notice ways that God's at work in each other, and the only way we're going to notice that if we're not looking at ourselves all the time. Humility. And so we're looking out, and we're noticing good, and then we're calling it out. We're practicing it. We're seeing what's good, and we're saying it out loud to them. And most of you know that that could be kind of embarrassing. Most of you have a hard time complimenting people, encouraging people. Do you not? Isn't it kind of weird? Have you ever, like, see, just if you could be a fly on the wall and watch two guys trying to encourage each other? You did pretty good. I'm sorry, what? I didn't say anything. (laughs) It's so hard to sometimes open up your mouth and say kind things to another person, which is weird that that would be hard. But it seems really hard for people. But it's good because it diminishes us a little bit. It it de-emphasizes our gaze at ourselves and it helps us to embolden them. This is part of the calling of nurture that we have, being humble which leads to gentleness and patience and bearing with one another in love. The other day I was telling the boys, and I think Kathy was there too, I was telling all of them that it's an amazing thing to me to think as I'm in year 17 here, how much as a 28-year-old at the beginning of Rock Creek Fellowship, how much people must have been putting up with me how much bearing with me they had to do that I may not have even realized because no one came up to me and said, we're really putting up with some awful preaching here, but, you know, we love you, so we're going to do it. They gently instructed me. I had one elder early on say, Satan has just walked in. Oh, I mean, sorry, that's a cat. I got them mixed up. All the time. But an elder showing gentleness to me, but speaking the truth in love to me and showing humility to me and helping me as a young pastor one time said, Eric, you get to come back next week. You ain't got to dump the whole dump truck on us. So so That's sweet. And helpful instruction that I can handle. Or like the lady at the nursing home said, well, you're getting better. You're no Billy Graham, but you're getting better. That was in seminary. Who knows if I've gotten better, but I've been born with, and it's happened in all of the places in my life where I've grown, is that people have been willing to encourage me. They've been willing to put up with me whether that's in a marriage or the home I grew up in or the the work environments that I'm in, the communities that I serve with. And that's what happens for you, and that's what we need from each other, people who are going to bear with us, who are going to have the humility to call out good in us, to say what they see when we can't see it for ourselves. So you have to be willing to not make a name for ourselves if we're going to live wisely in this community of nurture. And then Paul says this next, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And he's going to tell us that this unity of the Spirit is not some theological fiction. that's actual. He says there's one body, one Spirit, one hope to which you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. if we're going to live wisely and be a community of nurture, if we're going to not make a name for ourselves, we're going to also have to commit ourselves to practices of unity. And that starts in the local church, that starts in our families, that starts with us and then extends out into the broader world. But it's interesting, isn't it, that Paul says there's one baptism, there's one spirit, there's one Lord, one faith, He's emphasizing oneness. He's picking up, he's riffing off of Jesus' high priestly prayer who prayed that God would let all his believers be one to prove to the world that Jesus had actually been sent to the world. Paul thinks that the oneness and unity of people in the church is an apologetic. It's an advertisement for the truthfulness of Christianity. So when we're not one, when we're divided, when we're splintered, we're telegraphing to the world. Just so you know, Christianity isn't true. Or we're not living lives worthy of the calling we've received. Now, you start thinking about how, how do you have unity? And it seems to me there are, probably, there are three ways you can get unity. There may be others. You can tell me later. But these are three I've thought of. One is the unity by magic. And that's the funnest way and the rarest way. Unity by magic is when you have a church and you say, we need to, we need to put new carpet on the floor, as if, you have, you know, if you're extravagant. <laughs> we need to put new carpet on the floor and everybody says, at the same time in unison, the same color. Everybody agrees, there's no debate, and everybody wants the same color. That's unity by magic. It happens all the time in marriages. A husband wants something, a wife says, whoa, I wanted the same thing. Awesome. It happens in living rooms. What do you want to watch? Well, I want, I want to watch the movie. Me too. Holy cow. We all want to watch the same thing. It's fantastic. So there's unity by magic. That happens about three uh, 0.03% of the time. But it does happen sometimes. You get the same mind sometimes. You get, you're get you on board sometimes. But, but Paul's not talking about that because he says, make every effort to keep the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make every effort. He envisions there being some work involved here. Something you're going to have to aspire toward and lean into. And so in that respect, the... Unity comes not through the magic of us just automatically agreeing, but it comes through submission and deference. Again, fighting words. Words that will not appear in anything except as hate speech on the interwebs. Submission and deference are hate speech words. Because they diminish the person. Because they do not let you self-assert. They do not let you express fully who you are and what you want They actually urge you to say what somebody else wants is probably more important than what I want, so I will let them have their way. I will defer to them. I will encounter the freedom of giving up the burden of always having to have my own tyrannical way. This is how most unity is achieved. If you have a board trying to decide something, if you have a family trying to decide even what to have for supper or where to go for supper. If you have kids trying to decide, as one mother told me at the earlier service, who gets to sit in the front seat? She probably is the only mom who has a number of kids fighting to sit in the front seat. No other kids ever fight for that. They're usually outdoing each other in deference. No, you sit in the front seat. No, you sit in the front seat. I sat in the front seat last time. I want you to be able to see everything. This has never happened in the history of the world. <laughs> but you know what's interesting? She says, here's what we do. Until someone submits about the front seat, we just sit there. That's a great metaphor for how the bond of peace and the unity of the Spirit stalls out in the church. We can't move forward when when we're committed each to our own way and we're butting heads and we won't yield. So she says, if no one will yield and give the front seat to another, then we just sit there until someone does. We can't go anywhere. I like that. We can't grow as a church unless we give up, unless we defer, unless we... Honor others better than ourselves is we say, you know, your time's more important than mine. Your schedule's more valuable than mine. Your wishes are more valuable than mine. To me, that's way more lovely than something like tolerance, which is something and it's good. I don't want to be tolerated, I would like to be loved, just like you would. And part of the way we love each other is we defer to each other. And we give up what we want for someone else. So you can get unity through magic. You can get unity through submission. Or you can get unity when you've had a riff through the divine duct tape of forgiveness. I had a Subaru years ago. Don't get jealous. It was a 1986 GL10 Turbo. Twenty seven hundred dollars. Is I think it was made of plastic. It didn't have window frames. I think it it weighed. I could pick it up just like it with one hand. Not really, but well, I was going to the prom. This lady here, this one, Kathy, and. I was, going, I was getting the car gussied up, like it's the only time its life to be washed, and I went to a car wash, and of course, it knocked off the rear view window, mirror, not window, that would be even worse, <laughs> much wetter, but it knocked off the rear view mirror on the side, the side mirror, I'm sorry, side mirror, come on, tell the story, it just knocked it off, but it was power, so that it was connected by some cords, so... I did the only natural thing that a teenage boy who doesn't know how to do anything would do. I got duct tape. You his brother helped me and we put duct tape on that sucker. And that's how it stayed forever and ever after that. I didn't ever get it fixed because the duct tape held together these two disparate things that should, by all rights, have totally severed from one another, had nothing to do with one another. Well, it became a functional mirror again because the duct tape held it together. And that's what forgiveness does. It takes people who by no act of logical reasoning should have anything to do with each other anymore. And it holds them together. It binds them close because one has said to the other, I am not going to make you pay for what you've done. I'll eat the debt myself. Duct tape. Or gorilla glue, if you like that one better. It holds things together that shouldn't go. That's one of the ways we get unity. Because we're going to offend each other. We're going to snub each other. We're going to fail to be thoughtful. We're going to accidentally hurt each other. And we're going to purposefully hurt each other. That's the worst kind. We're going to mean to sometimes. And the question is, as a community... Well, asserting our rights and demanding justice be our clarion call. Or will, we say, but we got into this church by a supreme act, a monumental self-donation from our Savior who said, I'll eat all the debt for your life so that you may live. Everybody in here is here because Christ has forgiven you. And so we get to practice that. Tim Keller was in a recent interview with Jamie Smith, who's a professor of philosophy at Calvin College, or philosophy if you're a young child. And they were talking about division in our country right now. And Keller said a really wise thing, probably the first time. He's really very wise, amazingly wise. And he said, I don't think, something like this, I don't think that we really stand much chance at healing the wide splinters and divisions in the country right now, because the prevailing attitudes, the things that children and all of us are being taught, is the most important thing is self-assertion. So there's no way for us to get unity if all you're doing is asserting yourself. He says the communities where they actually do get some unity and they make some progress are these countercultural communities like the Amish, When that man a few years ago, some of you may remember, murdered some of their children. It's the most horrific and horrible thing that would make you want to instantly strangle the dude. And these Amish people, their lead foot. Surely in ways that their mouths were saying and hoping their hearts would catch up. Was to the murderer of their children, we forgive you. And in Charleston, two years ago, or a year ago, I guess, when that white boy came into an African-American church and shot up the place, murdered, these people had been so gracious and kind to him. And they showed on TV this, uh, his arraignment, he was sitting in the box, and the person after person who had just lost someone so dear and so precious to them looked him in the eye and said, I want you to know that we forgive you. Now, in our moment, people would say, "What's wrong with them? They're repressing important feelings. They're not feeling all the feelings. They can't forgive. Not that. That's too serious to forgive. You can forgive somebody if they scratch your car door, not if they murder someone. You can't forgive big things. And Keller said, "Well, in these communities, what happens is one... They haven't been the dominant majority culture. They've been oppressed people. And they've told a story week after week in their worship about an oppressed Savior who didn't call down the wrath of God upon those who brutally lynched him on the cross. Instead, he called down mercies. And they've been shaped by that story. They've been shaped by those realities and they know that this is the way forward. And we're called to this unity that will demand us the humility of not making a name for ourselves but also the forgiveness that says to people who have created havoc in our lives, people who have wounded us terribly, to say, you know what, I'm not going to make you pay Because my Savior has not made me. Now, that's a tall order. And I would dare say even superhuman. Which is why it's important as we close to say, Paul says this, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. (laughs) Paul, nobody in the Bible ever asks you to do superhuman things without superhuman resources. The Bible knows that by yourself, you're never going to like fully, easily, truly, completely forgive somebody or be humble. You can't do that stuff on your own. There's too much indigenous self-care and self-promotional instinct in you. But Paul envisions Christ, who's the breather into life of the church as the resourcer of the church, who's distributed gifts to the church. He says everyone's got a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, that Christ has taken up residence in us. Sometimes he says we are the temple of God where Jesus himself lives, that we're God's field where people are laboring and God is making us grow, a greenhouse of sorts of God where all his plants are presently actively growing. Miroslav Wolf, easy for me to say, adding to the idea of worship being adoration in action, says it's also reception. Which is to say, and this adds to our notion of nurture, that when we worship, that's adoring God and then it's serving him out in the world in our actions. But to do that, we have to be receiving from Christ. And that's what Paul is urging us to realize here. That we're this community where Christ has promised to apportion gifts to us. And the gifts he gives to us are never just for us. He says about his own calling. He says he has this commission. The grace that was given to me for you. He recognizes that in God's economy this magnificent thing happens. God gives to someone something that someone else needs. And it ain't going to get to them unless they distribute it. Why does he work it that way? I don't know. He likes development. He likes to grow things. That's what all creation's about. He said grow this place. Work out its raw possibilities into, and its potentialities into actualities. Develop the world. Mine it and subdue it and artfully create from it. With the grace that I've given you. If you realize that, this reception, if we're going to be a community of nurture, we have to receive the life of Christ, which means we have to be in the places where he's promised to be, like here, where pastors and teachers are preparing you for works of service in Sunday school and in the preaching, and even in the singing, the Spirit of God filling you and shaping you in the realities of God so that you can go out and be humble and you can... Work for unity and you can grow into Christ's likeness. God has given us worship. He's also given us, you know, his word and prayer and, and even each other. And the story of AA founding, it started because a man who had been sober for a while was in a hotel. He heard people laughing and he heard ice clinking And he was running to the bar. He was going to break his sobriety. And then he thought to himself, it isn't a drink I need. I don't need alcohol. I need another alcoholic. It isn't sin we need. We need another sinner. We need embodied grace around us who can help us believe what we can't believe for the moment. Bonhoeffer says, I need my brother because the Christ in his heart is stronger than the Christ in my own heart. And this is how God made it to be. That's why Paul Tornier said there's only two things. You can't do alone. You can't be married and you can't be a Christian. You, can't, you really can't be married alone. Do you understand this? And you can't be a Christian alone. You need your brothers and sisters in whom Christ lives. And then you need to practice it. He says as each part does its work, the whole body will be built up. This gets to the part of courage. You know, I said all... Families need wisdom. How do we live? We live with humility, with unity, receiving from God in all the places he promises. And then we also need courage. And most of us, so much of the service we don't give, I know a lot of you. Sometimes it's just pure selfishness, it's bad priorities, stuff like that. But sometimes it's a big yellow streak down the middle of your back. Or it's inferiority. It's thinking, I ain't got nothing to offer. I know a bunch of older people in our congregation who would, if you said, you need to mentor some people, they say, I don't know how to mentor anybody. You know, why? Because they're humble. They don't think they have anything to offer and they have bukus to offer. But they gotta, they gotta step out and do it and it'll feel really awkward. Encouraging people feels awkward. Telling people hard things feels awkward. Receiving good things from other people feels awkward you have to have courage wisdom and courage is what makes a family help form people and it's what helps the church form little christ you know if you've been around the news or you've been awake you know that millennials are the scourge of western civilization They are the worst people who have ever been invented, that God ever thought up. They, You know, too many trophies as a kid and spend too much money on their coffee and all that stuff. And they're the reason that America's going down the pot and all that stuff, right? You know this, this is the truth, and it's been verified. You get sarcasm, right? Well, I think about that, when I think about this calling that we have as a church, I think, how does anyone, if if the millennials are all so bad... And, of course, I don't think there's ever been another generation that thought the generation before them or after them was awful. So it's a new phenomenon to, like, bash a generation. But, you know, what's interesting about God's perspective on this in the church is he says, well, there ain't nobody who's quite yet what they're meant to be. That's why I summoned them into the church. We're the people who don't give up on anyone. We're the people that God has said, I know everything about you, and yet, I'm going to hang with you. And so I think about these poor millennials. We've got a lot of them here. Useless. Pointless. No! We shouldn't say things like that. It's ridiculous. There aren't any people that you meet who are beyond the reach who are beyond the pale of God's tremendous affection so that he might make something of all of us. And we need each other. And not in a kumbaya way, but in a God has placed the spirit of his very son in you. Don't keep it to yourself. That's why we need you at church. When you bail out of church, you deprive us. When you bail out of smog, if you deprive us. When you bail out of service, you deprive us. Because Christ has given all of us stuff to share with each other. If we got it, then we should all have it. Our calling is to be a place of nurture. Receiving from God so that we might be humble. So that we might be unified. And so that we might be constantly showing one another the very tender care and pre-love that a mother shows her new child. She doesn't say, this baby can't do nothing. He can't read. He can't drive. He can't even ride a bike. No mother says that. She just loves him into what he or she was made to be. And that's our calling as a church. Amen.